Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 22 as we get closer and closer to the end. We do have a new summer series. I haven't talked about it a whole lot, but it's about family, more specifically the church family. Thinking of We talk about that all the time. Good morning, church family. We talk about our church family. What does that mean exactly? And so we're going to be spending the summer unpacking some texts from Acts chapter 2 to just sort of have a refresher course on what that means. We've had a lot of you who are new to our family who have come into the covenant family, and we want to talk about what we mean when we talk about those kinds of things. Uh, That series, you'll hear more about that next week. But Really, we've got two weeks left of this. I hope you've enjoyed this this excursion, verse by verse, through Revelation. I know it's taken a while. It was sub-zero temperatures when we started this. You remember that way back in January? And, And we have seen over and over and over again these high words of encouragement to these very discouraged, had to have been discouraged churches, given all of the pressures that were on them and all of the things that they had to go through. And and what encourages them and what keeps them going is not the promise that all of that's going to be taken off of them or that their circumstances are going to change, but that their Lord, who is just behind the veil, is being unveiled to them. Revelation is an unveiling. And and more specifically, it's an unveiling of Jesus. But Jesus is going to bring with him a kingdom. And we've seen a picture of that as well. And for the last few weeks, we've been looking behind that final curtain. If you've been with us, you know there are five major windows that kind of get opened. This is the fifth one. And these last two weeks kind of wrap everything up with this embodied future city of God. And we talked about that last week, that, that, that we as God's people are seen both as a bride and as a city. Well, this, this morning, we're going to see that that view of the city widens a bit, and we start to see not only is this a city, but it is a city within a garden. And the garden is something we've all seen before. So I'm really, really excited about this today because if you're familiar with the entire story, that should seem familiar to you. If you're not familiar with the entire story, or if you're new to the Covenant family in the last, say, couple of years, uh, we did a series in 2017 on this. I went from Genesis all the way to Revelation, kind of giving our church family uh, some handles on which they could understand. How does your Bible fit together? How do I understand it? How should I interpret it? How can I get the most out of it? When my pastor or one of my deacons is not right there with me. Is there a way that I can understand it and wield that sword for myself? The answer is yes, absolutely. And so I did a sermon series on that, and then I wrote a book on it uh, as a gift to our church. And there's a limited number of free copies actually right through those doors. Just go back to the check-in table in between service. If you haven't gotten a copy of it and that's something you're interested in, that's our church family's gift back to you so that you can understand it. But a lot of what I'm going to talk about this morning counts on that wider understanding of Scripture because the last time we saw the scene that Pastor Nelson read to us at the outset of our time together was at the very beginning of the story, not the beginning of Revelation, the beginning of the Bible. All the way back in Genesis chapter 2, we read that the Lord took the man and put him in a garden to work it, to keep it, 
And then we read, after they brought a curse on themselves for being disobedient, the following in Genesis 3 and verse 24. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, there's a couple of perspectives that are given to us in that visual. Uh, the one that's most obvious, simply because our first parents got kicked out, is that angel is there to keep them out. All right, we, we kind of understand that. Don't go that way. I don't know what he would do with that sword, but it can't be pretty. So we're going to stay away. God told us to stay away. Our punishment for our sin is we're going to have to live outside the garden. But there's another sense that we don't often think about, particularly as we consider the whole story of the Bible. They are guarding the way. They're not just blocking it. They're blocking it temporarily, but they're guarding it. It is a marker. And the aim of that marker is that one day you and I, through the redemptive work of the Messiah promised very, very early in this story, Genesis 3.15, I'm going to send somebody who's going to fix what's been broken, somebody who's going to set everything back in its intended order. And, and so even in these earliest of stories, you see this sliver of hope. This angelic being isn't just keeping our first parents out. He is marking the way back to the world that was originally intended for us for the very moment when God fixes that world and brings it back to us. And, and so even in that, as Adam and Eve are forced out of this, they're leaving this place, they are told by this story, it will not always be this way. And you and I need to take heart in that as well. It, it will not always, you will not have to always live outside the garden. God's peace and God's righteousness and God's justice is going to one day reign as he sets everything back in its rightful place. In fact, a day is coming when the entire cosmos for thousands of years groaning under the very sin curse that our first parents brought on it and the very sin curse that you and I through our own sin continue to enable all of that gets fixed. All of that gets restored. So our history begins in Genesis in a garden. And by God's grace, what we see in Revelation 22 is it ends in a garden. That's where we're headed back to. And we saw a quick allusion to this earlier in Revelation. Let me just remind you of Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. He says this to the church at Ephesus, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So we're coming to the end, very last vision, very last chapter, very last installment of the entire Bible. We're going to find ourselves back at the beginning. And, and what we're going to discover in this picture is a far more glorious description of this garden than we ever would have imagined reading about in Genesis. And so here's the encouragement as John begins this letter to those suffering churches in Asia Minor. We suffer because we live outside the garden. So when you get sick, when a loved one passes, when there's family dysfunction, when there's financial strain, when there's anything that gives you a harsh, painful reminder of a broken world, you just got to remember, it's not the garden. This is not the place we're headed to. This is, the this is not the place that our first parents got kicked out of, but that place is coming. And, and we're, we're going to experience, in the meantime, some pain and some dysfunction and some violence and some abuse because we, we live under the curse of sin. You know, I've, I've been asked several times before when people go through just unimaginable suffering, like, is God trying to punish me? And most of the time, I, I can't answer that question. I don't know. It, it is certainly true that, that sometimes he does, but I don't think that it, it's right for us to just assume 
if something bad happens, it's because we've done something bad. Because for one thing, if you don't know what you've done, God doesn't do that. He's not an unfair parent. Furthermore, God's not vindictive. He's not looking for a reason to whop you. That's not who he is. Most of the time, more than likely, when we experience pain, it is simply either, number one, because we brought it on ourselves, as I used to do stupid stuff that my daddy, since this is Father's Day, would tell me not to do, and then I would get hurt, or I would sprain an ankle, or I would go down. I remember one time, it had just finished like four or five days of rain. I had a Kawasaki 100cc dirt bike, and I was 13. No helmet, genius, I'm telling you. And dad said, yeah, you know, it's kind of muddy out there. I don't believe I'd go out. That was my first ever motorcycle accident. Oh, it was ugly. And I remember my dad taking me to the ER. You ain't too smart, are you, boy? You ever had a moment like that? Most of the time when we experience pain, it's something we bring on ourselves. There are other times that we just go, you know what, I didn't, I didn't necessarily do anything wrong. Sometimes tragedy strikes, and it's nothing malicious. It's nothing that I did. It's, it wasn't disobedience. It's just the fact that I live in a fallen world that's broken. My sin didn't cause God to respond to me, but my sin is contributing to a world that's broken, and sometimes I'm going to not be able to escape all of its effects, but it will not always be like this. And so Jesus gives John one final picture of a restored paradise. And he challenges his people to wait anxiously for it, long for this moment. Don't, don't get too comfortable in the world that you're in. A better world is coming. And so in this one final act, he's also telling these churches one more time, it's worth it. They're under the thumb of Caesar. They're under the thumb of local persecution. They're dealing with all manner of things that you and I can't even imagine. And Jesus says, don't you give in to the beast. You stay faithful to me. You continue to do what I've called you to do. You continue to love me. You continue to love your neighbor and know it is worth it. Is it worth it? Yes. And in fact, there are three ways in which it's worth it. Number one, it is worth your awe when we look at this glorious picture. Look, look with me again at verse one. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, and on either side of the river, the tree of life. We've seen that before, haven't we? With its 12 kinds of fruit. Everybody goes, was it an apple? Was it that? Well, I, there's all kinds of fruit on this. Yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. So here's the big picture. Everything we're going to need in that world will be provided. We will have it. We won't have to work for it. We will work. There will be labor in heaven, but it will not be a transactional kind of labor. There will be a joy in the labor. God has made us, right? Some of y'all that like to sleep till noon and you think anything more than 40 hours a week is like slave labor, probably need to learn this. God created you for labor. God created me for labor, for work. You know, we get this mistaken idea that somehow the fall introduced, that's, the fall is the reason I have a job. No, the fall is the reason you hate your job. Okay, But God made you to work. There will be labor in the kingdom, but it will be a joyous labor, and it will not be a transactional labor where I'm looking for a W-2. Right? It's going to be joyous, joyous labor. And so anything I need, I'm going to get it. Let's look at the details of this vision in the reverse order. First, the, the leaves on the tree of life. 
And I'm so glad that there are times in Revelation where the scholars don't have to go nuts and argue about everything because John just tells us what it means. Uh, that doesn't happen very often, but right here it happens. John tells us that those leaves signify the healing of the nations. No more warfare. Now, if you think about it, we, we understand nation in two different ways. And even the Greek language of the New Testament does that. There's the word basileia, which means kingdom. And that's typically the way you and I understand the word nation. There, there's a body, there's a geographic location with borders around it and a body of law governing it and branches of government administering it. That's typically how we understand nation. But the word used here is the word ethnos. We get our word ethnic from it. And it refers not to a nation state, as we would understand that in the modern world, but to a group of people that are united by common race, common heritage, common language, those kinds of things. And what we see here is that there's no warfare between the Basileia because there is peace between the ethnos. I don't know if you've realized that or not, but almost every war that's ever been fought, it may have been fought officially above ground according to nation states, but underneath there was some kind of tribal strife that would launch all of that. Ethnicity is what's being talked about here. Now, in the kingdom, we already saw this in Revelation chapter 11, Jesus says the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. I know there's a lot of speculation about a one-world government and all this. I, I'll be honest with you. I don't know so much about all that, the kingdom of Antichrist. But I do know there is a one-world government coming when Jesus returns. There will only be one. There will only be one Lord, one kingdom. But you know, there's something about ethnicity. Scripture tells us it will continue to be a reality. Do you know in heaven I'm going to be a white guy? Did you know in heaven, if you're African-American, you're going to continue to be African-American? If you're Hispanic, you're going to continue to be Hispanic? If you're Asian, you're going to continue to be Asian? You know why? Because God created all of those colors in red, yellow, black, and white. He loves them all, and he wants all of them with him in eternity. And so one of the things we see here, that, that those leaves on the tree representing the healing of the nation, it just means old hurts are finally healed. No more nationalism, racism, acrimony, bitterness, suspicion. This new world heals the long history of distrust and the warfare that it brings between peoples. And in where that tree is, there's a crystal river flowing right down the middle, a symbol of the free and open access to that healing. I got to tell you, I live in Shepherdstown. Some of y'all live in like Charlestown or some of these other areas. And I, got, I, I love the idea of free water, don't you? Those, those water bills are expensive. And what we're told here is there is open and free access that provides for the growth of the fruit on that tree that nourishes us forever. And the reason all of this is true is because God himself is the source of that life. He goes on in verse 3 to say, And no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. So the curse we now live under is not like that. We, we, we live outside the garden. We live in a world that's broken by sin. It's happened, been that way ever since our first parents disobeyed. They immediately felt the result of that sin in three ways. If you remember the story early in Genesis, fear, fear. God, God doesn't intend in the new world for you to be afraid. Fear came into the world through sin. Remember that? Why are why are you hiding from me? 
Well, we hid because we were afraid. Why are they afraid? Well, because along with that fear comes guilt. They were guilty of breaking God's command. And when you take fear and guilt and you put them together, you know what they bring? They bring shame. This picture is of God's people having been marked on their foreheads, meaning they belong to him again. And there's a removal of that curse. There's no more disgrace. There's no more shame in this world that's coming. You know, we deal so inadequately with shame in our culture. Our, in our response to shame, all these years later, I mean, with, with even, even though we have the internet, our response to shame, it is identical to that of our first parents. You remember what they did? Yeah. Who told you you were naked? Well, what did you do? Well, I, I cover, right? They, they realized, wow, everything about us is exposed. And so they sewed fig leaves together in order to make coverings for themselves. And thousands, tens of thousands possibly of years, I don't know how old the earth is, I wasn't there, okay? But all these years later, we still like to cover stuff up. We don't want anyone to know. And that's shame. Christian faith is not a faith of shame. God does not want you living under that burden. And what he offers you, even in this world, you don't even have to wait till the next one. It's a type of restoration that can lead you to say, you know, it really doesn't matter who knows. I can be open about it. Right? We have extremes in our culture today. Right? We really do. I, I love, I mean, the fact that we're, we're trying to find that happy medium. We're trying to find the, the right way. So on the one hand, we, we're shameful and we try to cover something up. On the other hand, if we want to open it up, we want to be, I know it's probably bad timing right now given that it's the month of June, but we want to be, what, what do we call, proud of it, right? There's this open, right? We either try to cover our sin or we try to celebrate it like it's no big deal. Oh, you thought I was talking about your LGBT neighbors. No, I'm talking about you. I'm talking about you and me. Either cover it or minimize it. It's what we've been doing since the dawn of creation. And you know what causes all of that? Shame. Shame causes every bit of it. You know what happens? You know what, what happens when someone has that shame removed? They can talk about something openly. They can know it's forgiven. They can be okay with temporary consequences. I mean, some things you do in this life carry temporary consequences that may last you the rest of your life. But if, you're, if there's no more shame, you're content to submit to that and to deal with it. That's okay because God has dealt with it ultimately on the cross. Jesus died for my shame. So it's okay if people know because that's not who I am anymore. You know, in our culture, at least, one of the signs of shame is you can't look people in the eye. You've noticed that, haven't you? You do a business deal, you shake hands with somebody, you look at somebody and they're not right, something's not right. What is going on? Their eyes get kind of shifty. That, that's a sign of shame. That's a sign that there's something I don't want you to know. Read verse 5. Night will be no more. They will need no lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. 
And verse 4 says, they will see his face. Now in Exodus 33, God told Moses, you cannot see my face. For no one can see me and live. Jesus changed all of that. And I think one of the most awe-inspiring things about the coming paradise is your shame will be removed to the point that you can look your creator in the face. That's what's coming. And when the guilt of sin and the accompanying shame is removed, you know what else disappears? Fear. It goes completely out the window. Fear, shame, guilt, are obliterated in this world to the extent that you and I experience a level of worship that we have never known before. Now, the sentence that I just read in verse 5 gives greater description of what worship means in verse 3 because there's a couple of words in the Greek language that mean worship. The first is a, a formal type of worship. It means literally to bow before, formal worship. Um, verse 3, though, describes a type of worship that it's embodied in all of life. So in the restored paradise, that embodied daily life of worship, it's that 1 Corinthians 10.31. It's not the worship like we've been doing in here and like you're receiving now. It's the worship that you do tomorrow morning when you clock in at work. It's 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. That, that daily kind of lifestyle worship is what's being aimed at here. And in the restored paradise, it's that embodied daily life of worship that's empowered by us reigning over the creation under the light of God. And so here's the picture. The curse that's held us back is going to be completely and eternally removed. The very origin of evil and sin are vanquished. So even the threat of its reappearance is totally removed. And the result is that our union with our Creator will never again be interrupted. It will never again be marred by shame. Here's what we learn about the coming paradise from these verses. The presence of God is the best thing about this new and better Eden that you and I are coming to. See, when we talk about heaven and, and where we're going to spend eternity, it's not wrong to speak of uniting with loved ones again. It's not wrong to look forward, especially if you're chronically ill right now, to a point where you won't have to suffer through that again. It's not wrong to look forward to a day when there's no more pain. I mean, no, I, I don't know anyone who still has their sanity, who wants to hurt for eternity. It's okay to look forward to that. But, but I have a question for you. If it were possible for you to get all of that, all right, think about that. You can get heaven, streets of gold, walls of jasper, all the blessings of heaven forever, all of your sickness gone, everything restored. Here's the one catch. God won't be there. Would you take it? Would you take that deal? See, what's awe-inspiring about this reality is the presence of the Lord himself. There is nothing more glorious than the presence of God. Heaven is awesome because God is awesome. The next world is going to be awesome because God is awesome. This place isn't just better than where we are. The eternal presence of God means even now, that moment in the future that we haven't even seen yet is worth our awe as we dream about what that day will be like. So this vision is worth our awe. It's secondly worth our confidence. Verse 6, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. 
Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Trustworthy and true just simply mean reliable and genuine. He's saying, I am coming, I am coming soon, and you can count on it. So you need to anticipate it, you need to prepare for it, and you need to be ready. And I've already hit a wall of cynicism. I don't even have to look at your faces. I know I have because I know this command has caused some confusion because it's been constantly repeated since this book was written. Be ready. He's coming soon. And that was written 2,000 years ago. And here we are. We're still waiting. And so you may be going, hang on a minute. So I'm supposed to be just as anxious and just as ready as the early church was. Yes. Just as anxious and just as, as, early, as, as ready as, as Paul tells me earlier in the New Testament. Yes. Pastor, how am I supposed to do that? It's been 2,000 years. It's been 2,000 years. How confident can we be, really? How trustworthy is this promise when Jesus says, I am coming soon, and it's been two millennia. And, and further complicating matters, because we could always go to Isaiah, a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a day. Yeah, but, but I'll admit to you, if you're still cynical, that real, it still doesn't solve the problem of Paul. You read Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, we declare to you by word from the Lord that we who are alive and left until the coming of the Lord, what's he expecting? He's expecting the Lord to come in his lifetime. 2,000 years ago, he includes himself in with this number who've not yet died. And then he gets killed by Caesar. Was he wrong? What, what do we make of this word soon? Let me encourage you to think of it in this way. When I was a kid, like eight, nine years old, we would take occasional trips. I grew up in upstate South Carolina, and we had extended family. Uh, more particularly, I had a great uncle. His name was Fritz. And he lived in East Tennessee, between Bristol and Knoxville, a little town called Elizabethan. And I loved going up there. Uh, one of the reasons I loved going is because I had an older cousin, Kevin. He was about five, six years older than me. And, and so he was past all of the, you know, girls have dolls, but boys have action figures. You ever notice the difference? So he had, he had gotten past the action figure stage and so all of his Star Trek stuff, I'm talking old school, William Shatner, that stuff, was in my uncle's basement. And I knew once we arrived, if I could just be patient and have some manners for about three minutes, that I could say, Uncle Fritz, is it okay if I go down to the basement? And he would just laugh and he'd say, yeah, boy, go on down there. And I would spend hours and hours rummaging through the basement, finding old Star Trek toys. And is that weird? Does anybody else have childhood memory like that? Let, let me tell you what the hardest part of that was. It was getting there because the trip took three hours. And I know what some of you are thinking. My commute is three hours back and forth. I, that, Pastor, I work in D.C. Depending on traffic, sometimes it's longer than that. Yeah, I know, but when, you, when you're a 10-year-old kid, you feel like you're going to miss your 11th birthday, don't you, when you're on a trip like that. And, and so you're just, you just can't, you can't wait, right? But you're anticipating it. But here's the thing. As painful as it was, as angry as my father got at me for perpetually asking him how much further, I knew eventually we'd get there. I, I want you to think about that as the disposition that you and I need to have as children of God. This is what we need to learn about this coming paradise. This is, this is what we need to learn. 
He's coming soon. Well, if you, if you don't take that disposition, you know what? I know eventually it's coming. You, you're going to fall into a couple of extreme traps. On the one hand, you may become like theological liberals who say, well, Jesus really isn't coming back at all. There's no literal return. There's no literal paradise. This, this all just kind of needs to be reinterpreted so that we understand that he comes to us spiritually in our crises of life. Well, that's true. He does do that. But the picture here is a whole lot more than Jesus just comforting me and giving me a massage, making me feel better in the middle of my suffering. The picture in Revelation 22 is wholesale permanent change of the entire cosmos. He's coming and back. But the second error we need to avoid is this obsession over when. Because that leads to people setting dates and people writing stupid books and trying to correlate one-to-one correlations to, to what's happening in the world. And then they look behind them after none of it happens and discover, you know, I really wasn't prophesying. I was taking the Lord's name in vain. And you want to avoid both of those. So when you see this word soon, that's neither a signal to abandon belief in the return of Jesus, nor is it a signal for you to try to construct some sort of infallible timeline to justify the Bible. It's been around a long time before you were ever born. It'll be around a long time after you're gone. It doesn't need your help. It is the word of the Lord. But what you do need to do is understand the meaning, what's actually being communicated here. When God reveals himself to us eschatologically, when, in other words, when he reveals what's coming at the end of the age, he is completely disinterested in satisfying my ideas about appropriate timing. That's not his concern. His focus is on fulfilling his redemptive purpose for the universe. So when you read Paul saying, I anticipate being here at his return, That's an anticipatory disposition you and I are called to have 2,000 years later. Jesus said it best when he said in Matthew 24, 42, stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. There is a call in scripture for every generation to live like they're the last one. Doesn't mean I will be. Doesn't mean I need to predict anything. It means that my disposition in life, the way I treat my job, the way I treat my family, the way I love my neighbor, all of that is is to be informed by the disposition that I could possibly be the last generation on this earth before Jesus returns. And if I live like that, it's going to make a difference in the world. That's what God has called me to do. Why? Well, obviously not because it's guaranteed to happen. Because it didn't happen to Paul. These things may or may not happen before I die, but sort of like that trip to Tennessee when I felt like I was going to die before I got there. I knew eventually it's going to happen. The encouragement in the word soon, it's not a guarantee that it's going to happen within a specific time frame. It's a guarantee that it's going to happen and that it is my greatest and most blessed hope in this world that these words, not just chapter 22, the whole of the apocalypse, These words that have, since mid-January, unveiled to us the glory of Jesus. These words that have warned us of world powers that want to buddy up to us and act like they're a friend to Christians and influenced thereby the beast that will tempt us to turn away. These words that encourage us when we're down and we see no end in sight to the trouble in our lives. These words that tell me that the end of the present age is coming. These words that command me to hold on to everything in this world loosely because how 
of how temporary everything in this world is, these words that, that tell me in this concluding chapter that the world God originally intended will be mine if I'll just be faithful to Jesus. Every one of those words is reliable and genuine. We really mean what we say here at Covenant when we finish reading the scriptures and we look at you and say this is the word of the Lord. Every bit of it. These words are worth your confidence. Let me tell you something. You can stake your life on the coming of Jesus. And so you must get ready for it. You must get ready for it. Look at verse 8. This is also worth preparing for. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. And he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, uh, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. So after seeing not only everything that we've seen with him today, but all five of those curtains pulled back that we've been looking at together since, since January, all of the glory unveiled as we reach the end of this recorded experience, he is understandably overwhelmed and this results in a reflexive action. It's a right action, but it's toward the wrong object. He falls before the angel. And the angel very promptly, it's almost funny when you read it this way, very, very promptly, and likely with, with some fear for his own well-being, knowing what God does to idols. He certainly saw what God did to Satan. Corrects his fellow creature. I can almost see him pulling John up off the ground. No, 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 not me, not me. Uh-uh. No, let's not do that here. Let's not do that anywhere. I'm one of your fellow creatures. Worship God, which I find kind of interesting because for the past 21 chapters, John has been communicating that very truth through these visions. Don't worship the dragon. Don't worship the beast. Don't worship the prostitute. Now he has to be reminded, don't worship any created being. Don't worship God. John himself, who's been issuing these warnings, has to be reminded himself. And we think we can't be guilty of idolatry. We think when someone suggests that there might be idolatry in our life, that our appropriate response is to get offended at that. You might need to tremble a little bit instead. When somebody comes to this guy and says, hey, are you sure that thing, that person, that idea, that resource isn't becoming an idol, something you're hanging on to, something you've put on the throne that only God belongs to, that's something I need to listen to. In the same way as if I were with John in this environment, worship God. And by this point, John has reverted back. You know, I told you there are two words for worship. One is a life of worship, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is back to that traditional kind of formal worship, to bow before. The sense in this command from the angel is join with your brothers and sisters and the angelic servants of our God in marked anticipation of his coming and do that by bowing before him. Remember one of the themes of Revelation throughout is you get victory when you worship. You get perseverance when you worship. You become faithful to the end when you worship, bowing before your creator and redeemer in anticipation of his coming. So, so worship isn't just a means to spiritual victory. It's how we prepare our hearts for the paradise that's coming. This is how we wait for the next Eden. 
We clear our minds and our hearts of anything that might distract us. And we fall before only one. That's how our hearts get ready. That's how our hearts get ready. You ever wonder what that world might be like? You ever wonder what it would have been like to live before the fall? One day we're going to find out. The question is, are you waiting for that day? Your actions, your dispositions, do they demonstrate to the people around you that you anticipate that day? Is this where your hope lies? And how are you getting ready for that day? How is your life different? We talk about worldliness versus righteousness, and we should because the Bible uses those terms, but we, we, we tend to use it in, in exclusionary ways. Like, well, I don't want to be worldly, I want to be righteous, and that means I, I should never, like, there, there are certain things that I just should never do, and I'm going to stay away from that. It's where those old corny sayings come from, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or run around with girls who do. I did some bad things in my life, but I don't ever think I dated a girl that chewed tobacco. That was never a category in, in my mind. But you know what I'm saying, right? Don't, don't, don't do those things. I grew up in upstate South Carolina. They told me, believe in Jesus, don't ever smoke a cigarette, don't ever drink a beer, don't ever vote for a Democrat, and you'll go to heaven. Yeah, you should laugh because that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. That's not heaven. That's not what you, like, that's. Now, are there, are there, is there some good advice in there? Maybe. That's not the gospel. Don't conflate those things with the gospel because that's typically what we think when we think about righteousness. It's all the things I don't do. You know, I saved myself for marriage, which you should. I, I, I don't abuse substances, and you shouldn't. I pay my taxes, and you should. I come to church, and you should. I, I do all of these things. I mean, the, the issue of being ready for Jesus coming is not what you avoid. It's what you get ready for. If there's a dignitary that announces himself or herself, and they're coming over to your home, my guess is that you're going to get ready for them. Maybe you won't, I don't know, but if there's somebody you like and you're excited that they're coming, some head of state, some individual, right, you're going you're gonna to get ready for them. You're going to make sure the grass is cut. You're going to make sure the house is clean. You're going you're to have refreshments ready to be served. When he or she arrives, I'm guessing you're not sitting there in your underwear. You're dressed for the occasion. So we know how this works in this life. Every bit of that should inform the next life. Every bit of it. We have just been told through true, trustworthy words that paradise is coming and that we prepare for that paradise in this world through the way that we both formally and daily worship the Lord. And so do your worship habits communicate your anticipation of that paradise? Because all the other stuff that concerns you if there's other priorities in your life ahead of that, and it can be good stuff. It doesn't have to be. So this is, this is, how, this is the other side of legalism. It's why it's so harmful, right? I never drank a beer. I, I saved myself for marriage. I did all this stuff, which is good. But you still got your retirement savings as a priority over the kingdom. 
How are you getting ready? What is the disposition of your soul? How is the behavior in your life reflecting the anticipation of your soul for that coming kingdom? Because all that stuff goes away. It will be non-existent in the new world that is coming. You know what will be reality and eternal? The gathered body, the church. Are you truly ready? Are you getting your soul ready for this moment? Because Jesus offers you a life that will eventually have no sin, no guilt, no fear, no shame. And all you really need to do is receive that promise. And the way to do that is to turn from your sins and put your faith in him. For some of you, you've never done that before, which means you're not a Christian and you just need to bow today. Turn away from your sins, put your faith in his death for your sin, in his life, which was lived in absolute perfection on your behalf, and know that on that basis alone, you come to God. For some of you, you've, you've forgotten that, and you've gotten into what Paul calls, warns Timothy about, these things called civilian affairs. You're more worried about this planet than you are the renewed planet. You're more worried about the, the, the here and the now than you are what's coming later. And yeah, I know what world I'm preaching in. I haven't looked at my 401k in three weeks. I get it. I get it. But if nothing else, that should just remind you this world is broken. It's going to be up and it's going to be down. And there's a world that's coming that's far better. What do your priorities say about that world? Turn away from those priorities, even if you're already following him. Place your faith in him. Here's the invitation as we get to the very last part of this letter. Jesus has been unveiled in all his glory. We've been told that a better world is coming. We've seen that world described for us. And the invitation is simple. Let's wait on Eden together. Father in heaven, thank you for the promise of a better world. Thank you for the instruction in your word that faith, among other things, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things we do not yet see. And so, Lord, I, I don't know what situations are in front of me right now. I don't know what pain is in front of me, but I know that, Father, because we are human and because we are gathered, that even in the best of times in this world, there's going to be sickness, there's going to be pain, there's going to be sadness, there's going to be dysfunction, there are going to be things that that we're going to have to contend with. And I pray today, Lord, that you would instill hope in us by allowing us to have seared into our minds and in our hearts this picture of this coming kingdom. May we live holy and righteously. May we live in a way that honors you and loves our neighbor. May we live in a way that it just proves that the disposition of our hearts is that we are waiting on that other world and worshiping you. And Lord, may that give us a peace beyond all human understanding that would guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at nine o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. 
And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.